We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. rejoices as the excuses for not needing to finish top four begin to mount. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smith. You can find me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Hey, look, top four. What's a top four? Top six. What's a top six? It's a top seven, baby. Yeah, yeah. We we can't we can't spend our way into the top four. How are we supposed to to compete with the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund? No, 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 no. Top seven. You know what? I've always said Europa Nations League. No, that's not a thing. Might as well be a thing. Eventually, it'll be Europa Conference is like a trophy. Well, that may be the world we're living in, as crazy as it sounds, and we will discuss whether that is the case, because the big story of the day is, of course, the takeover of Newcastle United um, by the Saudi, I guess it's called the Public Investment Fund, which is their sovereign wealth fund, or at least 80% of it is is that takeover. We'll try to hit it from a few different angles. Um, Obviously, there is sort of the ethics and morality angle, which you you can't sidestep that, so we will definitely touch on that. I do want to get to the footballing angle, though, what it means for Arsenal on the table, what it means for our future and the power structure and the hierarchy of the Premier League. And then maybe we can get to some bits and bobs of Arsenal news to the extent that there's A, time for it, and B, it exists. Kind of a quiet time, of course, being the interlull. But this is big news. I think it also has maybe echoes of the Super League plan and maybe why that was rushed forward. And and we can talk about that angle too because I have some thoughts on that that might be worth exploring or we might find that they are uh, infantile, puerile, totally worthless and not worth discussing. We'll find that out with Paul. You can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. I'll pause. Woohoo! And Clive, you can find him on Twitter. Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. The quickest of quick notes about one thing, which is our, um, our live event. Our live event is taking place uh, very soon, actually, and I'm quite excited about that. It is the 17th of October. It begins at 3 p.m., but that's the ticketed portion. If you don't have a ticket, come to the non-ticketed portion starting at 4.30 p.m. at Victoria Tavern, Holloway Road, Sunday the 17th. No Arsenal game that day. We play on the Monday, so you can come. We can laugh about Spurs probably losing that weekend, you'd have to imagine. And uh, James Benj will be there. James McNicholas, Gunnerblog will be there. Clive will be there. Tim will be there. Sadly, I will be there. But you can get past that with all the other uh, luminaries that are going to be present. Plus, member of the Arsenal Foundation coming to thank you for your generous donation. So all of that and more and beverages and a good time will be had by all, hopefully. So we look forward to seeing you there. I hope you will be there. That's it. Enough of that. 
All right, Clive, let's kick it off with this. Yes, we know there are ethical implications. We'll get to that. Yes, we know there are um, you know, questions about the impact on just the, the game globally and the, the price of players and you know, all kinds of things. Let's start with the footballing aspect. How quickly and how intensely do you think this takeover will be felt in terms of the hierarchy uh, of the Premier League? I, I think you know there have been comments coming out of the ownership group that they want a gradual change, but they have the wealth. I mean, they have wealth that dwarfs any wealth that's come into to any league, more than PSG, more than Manchester City. They have the ability to upend the table, to spend what it takes to become what City have become quite quickly. Um, you know, and I think the days of players side-eyeing these kinds of projects and having some curiosity, and I'm not really sure, like, they've seen it now, right? Messi is at PSG. City have, have won leagues. Like, now players know that these projects can be massively successful and worth chasing. So how quickly and how intensely do you think this will be felt from a sporting standpoint? Yeah, I remember when Rubino went to Man City, I laughed and said, they're not going anywhere, are they? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, so, the they're not going anywhere. And um, and look where they are now. <laughs> We're watching them. And they've added, they've obviously got wealth, but they've also really built their club from a smart people perspective. Got some good people in. They they ready to ship for Pep, brought him in, up the up the players, and they analyzed players really, really well. Yeah, they've they've done what they do and they've um, yeah, I I don't want to go into the morality of it. I look at them and no one cares about us when we get smashed five nil by a you know, a club like them who have got a bottomless pit really. No one cares. Um I look at them and I think, Okay, this can happen. I remember thinking Chelsea never take our place. They've won more trophies than anybody since Roman came in. This can happen very, very quickly. But because of the strong governance in our game, <laughs> it, it won't happen overnight. But, but seriously, though, there will be, there's been a, a loosening of flags for fair play. But because Newcastle, in a strange way, have been run with a very tight ship, there is wiggle room for them to do exactly what they want to do for a couple of years before they start seeing penalties and fines. It's going to be interesting to see how they approach it. Money is absolutely ridiculous. And I've heard something today, $350 billion that, that, that that could be worth their ownership. They can do anything they want. And you can sit there and say, well, no one's going to want to go to Newcastle. Well, we know that they, they, they could if the money's right. right? So um, it's going to be interesting to see what people, infrastructure they put in place because that's what City have done well. And up to a point, that's what Chelsea have done well. Yeah, interesting what model they now go for, you know, the higher fire model, or are they going to go for a more organic model? There are clubs out there that have got new ownership, that have got money, that have been stupid with it, you know, and I know it's different, it's different sort of values, but look at, say, Everton, for example, got money and they're not quite getting there yet, but they will potentially get there in the future. As Arsenal fans, we're, we're thinking it's a top floor close shop, um, Will it soon be the top six be a closed shop? We don't know, right? And it's going to force us to think more about what success really looks like going forward. Yeah, I think it is the ultimate expression of what football is becoming, that as a supporter, your greatest hope for your team being relevant and competitive is to just be bought by someone richer than the other people that have bought clubs. Now, there are a few examples you can point to of clubs that have have outperformed and closed 
that financial gap, I think those are 99th percentile outcomes. And they are the exception that proves the rule because Leicester have won a title, Liverpool have won a title, but in 20 years, it's City, it's United, it's Chelsea. That's it. And really, it's just City and Chelsea since Ferguson left. So that's who wins titles. And we know why. It's spending. I mean, you see what PSG are doing, and it looks ridiculous. But this is an ownership group that has the money to dwarf that. Now, whether they will do that, whether there will be financial controls in place to prevent that remains to be seen. Paul, I, I do wonder, I mean, try to put yourself in the shoes of a Newcastle supporter. There was a pretty funny video going around uh, social media, a fake, you know, they're pretending to be a, a radio phone-in show and the radio host is like, we have the statement from the new owner group and they are uh, uh, human flesh-eating aliens and they say that they are committed to eating the flesh of humans, destroying humanity, feasting on its bones, uh, and that St. James Park will be an altar to the destruction of the human race. Uh, let's hear from Newcastle fans and they're like, well, I'm just glad to hear they're keeping the name St. James's Park. That That's better than the previous owner did. This is a fan base that has been beleaguered by a predatory owner. You could forgive them for wanting to look the other way at virtually anything to get out from under Mike Ashley. And it is a chance for them to enjoy the type of success that they haven't in 30 years. So if you can put yourself in the shoes of a Newcastle fan and, and a fan base that, look, whatever you want to say, like that, that is a, a rabid fan base supporting their club. Is, is this the dream come true or do they need to be a little more circumspect about it? Well, I, I think Newcastle is kind of a special case. Um, they've had to put up with Mike Ashley for 14 years. So getting a new ownership group with a slightly better human rights record than Mike Ashley, you know, that's probably a mor- morality victory for them. <clears throat> um, like he's just, uh, I don't know how they did it as fans. I don't know how they struggled through the last 14 years. Uh, and I think it's decidedly different how I feel about it versus a, a city fan when whoever Abu Dhabi or whoever came in and <clears throat> took over at city. It's like, uh, I, I certainly th- thought when I looked at the fans rejoicing and as they defend the actions of their owners and their club along the way and the, the bending, if not breaking of financial rules, I think we all know the rules are broke were broken, but they lawyered up to the point where mm. UEFA, FIFA, uh, all comers, no, uh, you know, nobody, nobody really wants to go to the mattresses with an Abu Dhabi or a PSG because they'll literally lawyer the BJs out of you. Because, it's called papering you to death. Yeah. 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 You might know something about, about this, Elliot, I do. um, with your background. So, uh, they have might beyond their money because they have lawyers. Back to Newcastle. Reason, the reason I think it's a little different is just the shit those guys have been through. So I would give them a few hours grace on Twitter before I get too high and mighty with them. But then I'll get high and mighty with them when they've settled down. Cause, <laughs> because <laughs> morals and ethics and where is football going? And it does matter. Um like we have this interesting situation when you look at the the Premier League, and I was I, w- I kind of got into it on the last podcast when I was talking about how Arsenal are kind of joining the gamblers. There's a group of gamblers within the Premier League and within the the Championship below, where like some of them are literally owned by 
gamblers or ex-gamblers or people who ran gambling companies. The point being, they take a highly, if you want, metrics, numbers, uh, playing the smart money, playing the smart tactics, aggressive choices on coaches. So there's your your Brentfords, in a way, your Leeds, your, your um, Brighton. Um, they're trying to play not just smart, but super smart, doing things, you know, you'll see Brentford with 10 guys in the box off a corner and shit. Nobody in midfield. You'll see Leeds uh, being a goal up and always going for the extra goal because... That's what makes sense all uh, across 38 games in the league. You you know, Leicester's an, inter- an interesting version in that they were very much the gamblers. They won the league. Uh, they got a bunch of money. And they still play. They haven't tried to become the conventional club. They've become a little more conservative, maybe. A little more conventional in terms of their 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 personnel that they hire and etc. But they're still basically kind of in that the new aggressive gambler metrics club and Arsenal's kind of moving much more into that camp. And we have a lot more to lose than those clubs. Like they can gamble everything because they didn't have a lot to protect in the championship or wherever they came from when they cut their teeth on it. But there's the oligarchs, there's the, there's the shakes, there are the billionaire owners who run franchise sports typically in America. There's kind of, and then there's a few conventional clubs, but they're disappearing. But there's kind of like four profiles of clubs. And here's Arsenal, in a way, uh, transitioning by going young, by go, kind of doubling down on the academy, by going only shopping in the 21 to 23 store. We're kind of picking a camp where we're, we're kind of a hybrid between the billionaire franchise uh, sports clubs owners but but kind of the early liverpool model of gambling uh, on metrics on styles and newcastle are just going to do it the th- basically they're going to look at what city did spend a shitload of money bring in great people set up great processes and try and out city city over time and it'll be rather stomach churning but it's the way of the world and there's not too much we can do um not too much we can do about it apart from be the best club we can be within our our segment of the premier league and football and at least uh, at least i like what we're trying to do in this in this world even if our chances just became even slightly more remote of winning the Premier League anytime in the near future. Yeah, look, it almost feels silly to talk about our project in the context of the kind of money that can be spent. But this is a classic two things can be true. It can be true that what Newcastle will be able to do economically now is beyond anything we can realistically compete with economically and also true that we have to do what we can do. I mean, this shines a, a white hot spotlight back on Stan Kroenke and KSE, but I think you reach a point where even they can rightfully say, we can't spend what they can spend. We just can't. I mean, look, at some point you say, yes, they can. They're billionaires. I mean, this guy's got $320 billion, This guy's got $50 billion, This guy's got $10 billion. They all got a lot. Do you want to be in a situation? Does it make sense to be in a situation 
where to get even a Ben White, it's not 50 million pounds, it's 220 million pounds because it can get to that level. And before you say, no, it can't, that's exactly what has happened. What was our record transfer for so many years? I mean, our Shabin was our record transfer, I believe, at 30 million until it was Ozil. And then it was Ozil for a long time, I think, until it was Oba and, and really Nicola Pepe after that. There, there aren't that many examples, but the money has just started to skyrocket for everybody, and especially in the Premier League. And Clive, I'm curious about one thing that I've been thinking a lot about today. The Super League and UEFA and yeah. the delicate relationship right now between these clubs. I think these clubs probably saw that this deal was coming and said, this is going to be unsustainable. We are going to reach a point where you have to have billions invested in your club to compete and to be in the top competitions. And unless we break away from this, we have no hope. We have no hope of, of competing. And, and they might be right, but let me ask you, is there a possibility, not just possibility, a likelihood, because I think there is, that the pressure will now be put on UEFA by the Premier League clubs to say, we are the elite of football, not the Champions League. The Premier League is the elite of football. There will be such a concentration of talent, both coaching talent and player talent, and, and backroom talent, back sta- you know, the staff talent, that we will be the premier competition, not even UEFA. Because look, Barca are a shadow of themselves. They're falling apart. A lot of these glorious clubs are falling apart. And so, will there be massive pressure for UEFA to relent and say the top six in the Premier League make the Champions League and seven and eight make the Europa League and just over-represent the Premier League to prevent these clubs from taking their ball and going home and playing somewhere else? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've had had a similar conversation earlier today. And I think right now, the top four doesn't look, look enough. There are already conversations about the top four currently being the best four teams in Europe, right? And I think what's happened in Spain has really put a highlight. What's happened to Real Madrid and Barcelona? It shows you what happens when you get ruined by inflations and bad recruitment decisions at Barcelona. Real Madrid are hanging on in the background there. Um, in Germany, we all know what happens there where everything goes towards Bayern Munich. They can, the team that finishes second, they can take their captain, take their manager and, and, and go again. Right, so um, they're well protected in that league. The Italian league has got the new zone contract, and they are a league that's on the up. Again, these numbers just dwarf them completely. Dwarf them. How can how can they compete with these teams over over a long period of time? So everything is being concentrated to Premier League, and Europe won't like that. They won't like that, and they're gonna. And what they want to do, they're gonna want to say, okay, the Premier League is where the real money is. When Paul mentioned the word people. I was just kept thinking this is going to be such a talent race. It's going to become all about people. And when you have too few people for, you know, for that many clubs, what happens then you get in, you get huge inflation, right? So managers will cost you more, players will cost you more. And what teams will do is they'll chase the dream. And then you get situations like Barcelona, they get situations even worse, like I'll say even worse, but closer to home in, in Derby County, for example. You know, chase a dream of the Premier League and look where they are right now in, the, in administration. I never thought that would ever happen, right? So you you got situations where what does the promised land look like? What do you get for the promised land? Can I get to the promised land? If I can't get to the promised land, why should I invest? You know? And I started me thinking about the Spurs game. Is the Spurs game going to be our highlight of the season? Is that going to be it? 
you know, going forward. I mean, it does make you think about your expectations on the team, the club, and your feelings of joy, what you expect to, to happen. The way Arsenal have approached it is they're moving on, so we know what they're doing in the transfer market with their 623 and unders. And we all generally like that. We're why it's going okay. <laughs> if it goes wrong, we may question it. Um, and it feels like, for some reason, it's almost like we're playing a game that other people are not playing. Are we showing foresight? I mean, when we moved to the Emirates, it was all about revenue streams. TV numbers weren't as big then. And suddenly TV changed, ownership changed, and the match day revenue isn't as important as it once was. And it's almost like we're playing another game and we can't quite keep up through no fault of our own, just, just business, market forces, etc. And football as a sport, there's a, there's a golden rainbow out there and it's all around media and it's all about owning your own media deal and when that happens the numbers are going to be off the scale how they're going to protect itself is football going to eat itself i i'm not too sure but this deal feels like a turn in the pace where the game needs to think really strongly about its governance its wage model um does it need a waste cap etc etc i'm just not sure if the game is going to be sustainable at these levels. And this is not me pointing the finger at Newcastle, because we sat here and watched Chelsea, we sat here and watched City, so we can't suddenly say, well, you can't do this, Newcastle, because that's not right. But it does make you think a little bit more um, holistically. And I said earlier, how this gets covered by Sky, well, I'm sure going to embrace it, and how it gets covered by our investigative media is going to be interesting to see what happens in the next few days. Yeah, I don't. I think the problem is... What is com- competition? What is competition? Is competition something that just happens on the pitch for 90 minutes? Or is competition the entire process by which you try to build a team that can go and win trophies, go and win a league, go and win a Champions League? If competition is just what happens on the pitch for 90 minutes, then yeah, any team can win any game in a one-off and maybe you get lucky and you go try to have a good day out if you're going to the ground or if you're watching from home, you pour yourself a drink and you watch the football the same way you put on a Netflix show and that's competition. But if competition is the entire process by which you try to build a winner that can be a dynasty or, or achieve glory, eventually you reach a point where you only get access to that competition through ownership that will spend money that cannot be competed with. Because here's the question. Do you think the Saudi Public Interest Fund cares what the commercial rights are? Do you think they care what the TV money is? What the shirt sponsor money is? They don't care. I mean, it helps them have the the veneer of authenticity, the veneer of playing in the same competitive landscape, but they're not. When you have 320 billion pounds and you can spend as much of it as you want, maybe you need that veneer so that you can, you know, flaunt the laws and the regulations, but you're not competing. You're not really competing with these clubs. Arsenal aren't competing with Manchester City any more than those French clubs are competing with PSG. Can they beat them on the pitch over 90 minutes? Yes. Can they even win the odd title because you got a bunch of mercenaries who only want to win the Champions League? It's possible. But you, they can't build a team that can realistically compete with those guys, not over any sustained period of time. And it destroys the competitive landscape. And so the question becomes, what should the competitive landscape be about? If it should be about qualification to the Champions League, then you go to UEFA and you say, this is a nonsense. Name the stars of La Liga right now. Not easy to do, is it? Yeah. It's not like it once was. Name the stars of La Liga. 
That's just not, you know, it is changing. And all of them are going to be in the Premier League eventually, unless you're a hipster and you know, you know, I mean, but Mbappe's in France and Holland and Lewandowski are in Germany. And the rest of them are in England and a couple in Italy. And there's Kareem Benzema, I guess, an old Louis, an aging Luis Suarez. Bayerin. You know, what was that? Bayerin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But Hector Bayerin at Sociedad, yeah. that, to be fair, uh, a star of fashion, you might say. Yeah. But so point, he, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Also, good, good point. Yep. Yeah, I think the Super League thing is ringing around my head at the moment um, because we have to bring it back up because I think it's it's more relevant now than it was then. Yeah, I I, I never I, it was it was poorly thought through, but always look behind the the headline, shall we say? Um, because I was thinking all the time they're doing this for a reason. They 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 want to protect their place and position in the world's game, right? and. And why wouldn't you try to do that for your own selfish meanings? Now, look, it was too selfish to where the fans weren't even thought about. But there's something behind this. And these clubs, a lot of these those clubs, those 20 clubs or wherever it was, they have an historic value in the game. But the fear is history doesn't mean as much as it used to when you have this sort of cash, you know, and... Um, Right now, because of our history, we have 20, 30 million fans around the world. And that global reach of Arsenal will sustain our position in the game up to a certain point. But there comes a point where people start to care about results and and start to care massively about your latest results or your latest ability to have, be at least going in the right direction. And we've seen what happens when that doesn't work for us. You know, and the reaction, I do feel teams are going to want to protect their phony baloney positions in the world's game and how they do that is going to be interesting earlier and i the champions league discussion you had earlier i totally agree that if that's the promised land you better make the promised land bigger and a little bit more unfair you know you've got fifa trying to encourage more nations into the game and these top clubs are thinking i want to be in that top competition if you don't let me in there there's going to be problems for you. And it's, it's going to come back up. I, I really see it. It's going to come back up because there are a lot of smaller teams in the Champions League. And, and and that's not a bad thing. But there's a lot of bigger clubs that are not there. And they're going to look around and say, we need to be there. We need to have a, a way of arriving at that competition, which is slightly easier than it is today. And that's what I think Premier League clubs are going to push for. Teams like Arsenal, Spurs, Everton... Aston Villa, Leicester, now Newcastle, all pushing up, all pushing up for a place that doesn't exist at the moment. So it's going to be interesting what happens. Think of football and the footballing landscape like a big poker table, a no-limit Texas Hold'em poker table. How do you win at poker? Well, one way is you can be cleverer and better than anybody else. But one way you can massively give yourself an advantage is to have the biggest stack of chips at the table. Because you can bluff, you can push people around, you can push people into uncomfortable positions when you have the biggest stack of chips. Now, if I go and sit at a poker table, there's only so much money I'm willing to wager because I have a finite amount of money and I got to be careful. What if I go and sit down at a poker table with a billionaire? Even if I'm a much better poker player, the billionaire can throw endless amounts of money until he ruins me. Okay, And there's really two classes of clubs right now. There are clubs that care about money. They're greedy and revenue-oriented. And they're Madrid, and they're Barca, and they're Arsenal, and they're United, and they're Liverpool, and they're Juve. And then there are clubs that don't. Why do you think City was one of the first to pull out of the Super League? Because they don't care. 
they're not in it for the money. And Paul, unfortunately, that you know, we're starting to edge towards the part of the conversation that I think people, you know, some people will be much more interested in, some people much less interested in, which is if they're not interested in the money, then what are they interested in? And that's the sports washing. That's the laundering of reputation. That's soft power. And I think we've reached a sort of unfortunate point as a society generally. Whenever you talk about society in those terms, you're probably going to say something dumb, but here I go. I think we've gotten to the point where when we point to something that's bad, as long as you can point to something else that's also bad, then that thing's not bad anymore. It's the whataboutism, right? Yeah. So pointing to the things that are bad about the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund sports washing through Newcastle. People can say, oh, well, what do you think about your owner? You know, Stan Kroenke is a billionaire and Walmart. What are they doing to the world? And billionaires are all evil. And like, yes, different things can be bad in different ways. And pointing to one thing that is bad is not an attempt to excuse another thing that is bad. But at some point you draw the line and you say, this thing is bad. Let's, let's focus on this thing being bad for a minute, right? If you tried to raise $100 million to cure breast cancer, Hopefully someone wouldn't come along and say, what about testicular cancer? Like you can focus on multiple things. And so I think it is fair, Paul, to look at the sports washing context of this and say, what does it do to a sport when the reason a club is owned and the reason that they are competitive and the reason the money is thrown at it is to launder the reputation of a nation? And, you know, by the way, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund has engaged in this in other places, the WWE it was a very famous WWE event in Saudi Arabia that caused some outrage and some boycotts and some issues. So this is not their first rodeo in doing this. And, you know, I, I think it bumps up against a lot of the sort of social justice movements that are adjacent to the Premier League and, and engaged in there. And, and I, I think that this calls that topic back into question. And I want to be clear, it's in question for a lot of owners of clubs. Manchester City's ownership. Chelsea's ownership, and yes, Arsenal's ownership as well in the ways that billionaires are bad. But since this is the topic we're on right now, let's talk about this particular ownership group. How troubling is this sports washing, this laundering of reputation through the ownership of, of clubs to you? And to what extent, do, I mean, are we at the point where everything's bad and everything sucks and all owners are bad and this is just beyond no. something we should care about? Or should we really deeply, truly care and push back against this stuff? Uh, look, I have a major issue with people who want to obfuscate this debate to the point that you can't have it. Um, there's a massive difference. Like, all billionaires aren't bad. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I think people would say that to become a billionaire, to acquire that amount of money, you've either exploited labor or flaunted government regulations or taxation. But, you know, like, there's a difference between that and, like, ordering the execution of a journalist. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is a there massive topics, asymmetry you know. in terms of the morality. But like intrinsically, a billionaire is a very successful business person, right? That's one um, potential way to get there, yes. Yeah, and you can quibble. But like I bought some stuff in Walmart recently and the experience was reasonably good and it was at a good price. But Stan Kroenke doesn't own Walmart he does uh, retail outlets and stuff around it, and he's now mostly running sports franchises. I mean, it's just not the same fucking animal. We all work in companies and corporations, and they all basically play within the law. And you can say flout this and flout that, but it's a back and forth, and there's a legal system, and there's recourse, and we're all part of it. That's just like the normal to and fro, and billionaires are 
generally a bit better at the whole business thing than other people. So they end up billionaires or maybe they have some advantages, but they also have to be kind of like, give me a fucking break. That is not the same as taking the wealth of your nation as a dictator while committing human rights violations. These guys have blood on their hand. There are murders. It's not the same fucking thing. Now, um, I think the issue behind all of this to perhaps lighten the mood 5% <laughs> is that there's an inevitability here. Football has done something terribly, terribly bad by being by far the most uh, uh, compelling sport on the planet. It's the sport, right? If if you come to Earth, your extraterrestrials come to Earth, there's a reason they picked a football club in the Premier League. It's by far the best sport on the planet. Everybody fucking watches it. Um we had a chance. We brought in VAR. We brought in bad refereeing. We backed off that. And uh, even though the, we had the chance to make this game almost unwatchable, we didn't take it. But unfortunately, everybody watches this. All the eyeballs, all the commercial, all the money, everything goes into football. All the money's in there. Therefore, that's where all the money goes. Uh, there's an accelerator going on here. Um, and then nation states who want to sports wash. Well, there's only one really game in town. And it's just uh, at some level, this is a inevitable B uh, the multipliers in terms of the finances are just rid ridiculous and C sports washing is going to be a thing. And we've got to decide our world in it as a club. And there's a whole difference between clubs that basically try and live within their means. Uh, you know, 90% of the clubs on the planet, 95%. And 99%, yeah. 99%. And the few percent who, as you said, don't really care what the uh, revenue incoming is. In fact, they may cheer when, cheer when the revenue slumps when covid kicks in because it hurts everybody else they're fine they've got infinite sources yep. here so there's two different things going on uh, massive asymmetry it's not the same thing uh, it, i can't help you if you can't see the morality difference between clubs with owners who have accrued enough money to purchase a club and nation states abusing the funds of their citizens um their resources and other countries' resources as dictators with human rights crimes. It's not the same thing, but it's kind of inevitable within football. We've just got to find our place as a, me as a supporter of Arsenal Football Club. Uh, like, I'm not going to let them, like, I'm okay with good versus bad. We're still the good guys. And when we play them, I know that right is on our side. And. Yep. And we've got to do the good thing, the good football, work within our academy, do what we're doing. I'm still going to – fuck them. I'm, they're not taking it away from me. As long as Arsenal wants to be a proper football club, and they do, I'm going to support them, and I'll be there for them. And the baddies can come in and piss all the money they want into it from – they're dodgy sources. They get to be the bad guys. We may not win the Premier League, but we'll ha we'll wear the white hats. Fuck them. And and like 
I want to be clear, that to me, or I, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. That to me is not a judgment of Newcastle fans who want this. No, I get it. I get the, you know, everybody wants Christmas. You know, everybody wants presents under the tree. Um, and finding out how mom and dad made the money to buy the gifts to put them under the tree. Sorry if you're listening and you still believe in Santa Claus. I'm sorry if I ruined that for you. Like, you still want presence under the tree. I think what's unfortunate is we are reaching a point where sometimes we look at morality as an A-B test, as black and white. Morality is a gradient. Like if if I literally take an ax and murder someone and you say, oh, you're a murderer. And I say, well, you drive a combustion engine car and that's destroying the environment. That's going to murder three, 10 billion people. You're a murderer too. Well, no, they're different. <laughs> like, like, yeah, maybe driving a combustion engine car in some way is bad and has bad externalities and repercussions that are negative for society, but you killed someone with an ax. That's worse. And morality is a gradient. And so, yes, like... There is no question in my mind that Stan Kroenke's a bad dude has done bad stuff. Bad stuff to fans of other clubs. Just ask St. Louis people what they think of him. You know, bad stuff through business practices, I'm sure. You know, I, nothing that I can speak to specifically. I'm not going to argue with you, Elliot, but I strongly disagree with the your line your line of no, no, accusation. No, no. I, I'm agreeing like, with you. He's just I'm a businessman. Like, well, doing he's, done, he's, done, he's done bad shit. Like what? But, what I'm saying. Well, I mean, again, let's just set that aside for one second. Yeah, I agree. J- just for one second, because it's my just point not, it's isn't— It's just not in the same fucking no, that, universe I'm totally of agreeing with you. It's the you drive a combustion engine car, and that somehow has a negative externality on society, and the other person picked up an axe and killed someone. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you're not wrong to point fingers at a lot of these owners, including our own, and say that they have absolutely got— skeletons in their closet that are bad and make them unpalatable. And it is okay to point to this and say this is worse. And I do think it it does butt up against some issues. I mean, like, what is- Here's what I'd say, though. There's a big difference between a mature man, Manchester City fan rather than some 14-year-old somewhere on the planet who knows the score and has no issue of what his club does and their ownership and a new Newcastle fan who's just th- thankful that uh, Mike Ashley is fucking off. Those are two different things for me. And I do have an issue with a Manchester City fan who, say, is part of their their supporters uh, association who doesn't have an issue with money in football and how it all works. Now, there are issues for billionaire club owners, but they're totally different to nation states and oligarchs buying in uh, and the whole nature of how they're contorting the sport. And I think there's a real, a growing need every day, every week, every month in the Premier League for the role of supporters clubs at at clubs because they take the medium long-term view. They take the perspective. They look beyond what's good for Manchester City and they look at what's good for the football pyramid and football in general. And we should educate ourselves and participate and see the broader picture. Yeah, well, Clive, I, I want your take on the sports washing part of it. I mean, I don't think my goal here was to say we have to self-flagellate and admit the flaws of our own owner before we're allowed to have criticism of other ownership groups. Like, you should just be able to say, I get it. Everything is problematic everywhere. This is in its own unique category, and we're going to discuss it as such. I do see it that way. I see this. And again, this is not a criticism of Newcastle fans because I get it, but I see this as 
having a lot of particularly unique problems that maybe have not existed with some of the ownership groups that have come into the game before. So do you see this as just a continuation of existing problems or maybe an enlarging and increasing and amplifying of the kinds of problems that have existed at a lower level? It, the latter. I see it as, I see it as a, a, real, a real hit in the head. I feel a bit sad today. I don't know why. Yeah. Nothing's happened yet. I'd, so sometimes your gut feeling and your first emotion is the is the one you should listen to. Mm. Um, I feel a bit sad today, and I feel because we're, we're all football fans, right? And I'm sitting here trying to sort of reconcile myself with uh, the fact that we've got the youngest team in the Premier League, and we're building something. And I think it's really quite exciting. I'm mature enough to say I can deal with that. Some people are saying, "Why have we got the youngest team in the Premier League?" I'm, I'm really excited about the future. And then you think, crikey, we're trying to grow something organic here, trying to build something, the value of people, something aligned to our values. And then you say to yourself, well, does it really matter? I hope it does. I'm with you, Paul. I want to be, you know, I support us of being in the fourth division. It didn't bother me, right? So, um, and, and there's a reason why. And it is our values. It is the values for which the club is run. And when I see them being challenged, that's when I get worried. You know, and I get when I see transfer deals that concern me, shall we say, I get worried because the values are the most important thing. The values of the club, how it operates, and the values of the people that support it. You know, we all stand as Arsenal fans together. I know, in a, in a, because we all want the same things and like the same things about the club. And so those values make us who we are. So I'm really pleased at how the club will operate at the moment. And then you, you say to yourself, well, am I am I living in a dream world? You know, should we just be getting Stan out and getting our own owner in so we can win the Champions League? And there and there are people that think like that, you know, and and it's a shame that we're forced to have those sort of divided views by things that are happening around us. It shouldn't be that way, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. But it, you can see that's going to happen. It's going to happen. We lose three games. It's going to be, have we got the right owner now? Do you know what I mean? Let alone have we got the right manager? You know, have we got the right technical director? Have we got the right owner? Have we got a chance here? I'm not. Are people prepared to wait? You know, so we, it's going to drive a different fandom, and it's going to drive different fan expectations. And what does success look like now? What does it look like? You know, and it is a challenge for us. Now, it took Man City four years to win the league when their ownership came in, right? And they lucked it on the last day. <laughs> but it took them it took them four years and they got some smart people in that club. Right. So Chelsea, they were on their way. So they arrived quite quickly, but they were on their way two thousand three, two thousand and four. They got the ownership in and they just top and tailed it and sorted everybody out. You know, um Manchester United, due to their ownership model, They've had so many millions, hundreds of millions going interest payments. Their fans must be the most frustrated fans in the world, given the fact that their neighbours are being smarter, smarter than them, taking their trophies. It's it. They must be going mad, given how massive they are, what a cash cow they are. And so they're Arsenal, and we're sitting there thinking, historically, we're the third biggest, most successful club in the history of the English game. Did football really exist before 1993 anymore? Does that really matter? Um, we are going to be challenged, really. We're going to be challenged in our thinking about what success is. And um, the next few weeks and months, I'm going to hold on to my positive feeling, but my initial emotion today is I feel a little bit sad for the game 
overall where it's heading and there's nothing we as fans can do to stop it unless the game wakes up and governs itself properly and we're not about to do that anytime soon. There is something about culture that is really difficult to discuss because it means different things to different people. There are football fans who would say, I'm the problem with their culture. I'm a foreign fan. I'm an armchair fan. I'm an I'm a online fan. There are some people that would say, you know, that, that the culture of the ownership groups coming in is not compatible. These things are complicated. But ideally, what you'd like is to feel pride in the institution that you support because we don't just call ourselves fans. We call ourselves supporters. And when you support the club, you want to support the culture, the values, right? Um, and I try to put myself in the shoes of, of other types of people. You know, people that that have walked a, a different life, that have experienced different things and what it's like for them. What, you know, what kind of feelings must it be right now if you are a, a, a lifelong Newcastle fan who also happens to be gay? I mean, wh- what is that feeling? To understand that the, the institution you support, that the club that you love is now going to be owned by people who, if you were to live in the country where they are from, your lifestyle would be not only impermissible, but potentially punishable by the loss of your life. I realize these are very deep topics and they're difficult to discuss. And a lot of times we want to just say, I I don't want to discuss that. There's enough of this in life right now and it's hard, but it's being pressed upon us in the football and putting yourself in the shoes of that Newcastle supporter. That's really sad to have to feel like the very life, the very identity of who you are could be rejected by the people who now own and control an institution you've supported your whole life. And these cultures are clashing. And maybe calling it culture is, is doing it a disservice. And that's why I do think Paul's comment about asymmetry is fair. Because you can always point to the bad things people do and different types of people do. But there are some things that are big and scary and hard to deal with and hard to cope with. And these are culture clashes that are coming to football. I do think, Paul, that... In addition to this, though, it does beg the question of, can it reach a point where all of this kills the golden goose, where people start to say, what's the point? Where they check in, like I said, to football, like they do a Netflix show. They turn it on to watch the 90 minutes, and they can't really engage beyond that, because here we are. Think of all of the hours we have poured personally into microphones, analyzing to within an inch of our life. Did we sell this player for the right amount of money to flip it into that place should, you know, we have used the Saliba to, in, to save the money on Ben White so we could put it into a, and you start to realize the silliness of that in the, in the face of what you are up against, that you have the impression, the veneer of competitiveness. But here we are, we're the youngest team, as Clive said, and we've got these academy kids and that helps us build. And then, you know, we've, we've built with a good young core and then a club just gets an owner that laughs in your face as they flaunt the rules and spend whatever they need to and go right by you. So do, do they risk, with with more of these owners coming into the game, killing the goose that lays the golden egg and, and creating a situation where for a large portion of supporters, the ability to engage with this beyond the 90 minutes starts to be obviated by the fact that, th- that there's the illusion of competition is shattered? I guess I don't think so. I think... Like football may change the relationship of the supporters as they are today, as they were in the past, may change the supporters themselves, may change. Uh, But the people with the money 
are smart with their money and they want the eyeballs on the screen. So it may become more entertainment, as you said. It may be more about the 90 minutes, but it just, like the zombie armies of people who want to watch this stuff online, talk about it, I guess I just don't think it'll stop. It might change. Uh, some of us may get alienated from it. Um, the traditional supporter, the supporters around the club, that's going to change. I mean, it's already changed, I'm sure. And and Tim and and Clive can talk a lot more about the the nature of football and foot, football supporting over the last decade and last couple of decades. It's inevitably going to. I mean, the age profile itself has changed. I mean, yeah, was a time it was kids in their 18s, 20-year-old, young 20s, early 30s, and now the the demographics, you know, it's an older generation that can afford to go along. Like, it's changing. It's going Just watch to be- the documentary Green Street Hooligans if you want to learn mm. more about that. Mm. <laughs> um, it's, it's going to change. Yeah. But, but the club can do the right things. I get to have my relationship with the club. Like, I do a bit of this Buddhist meditation-y stuff, and it's all very good, and I recommend it to anybody who might be interested. But, like, at the end of the day, you control some of your reactions to it. I mean, it's, it, in theory, you control how you feel about everything, but you don't really. But, you like, it does – the reason I do that kind of stuff is because I want to make, have some control over my relationship with the club. The thing that would really fucking piss me is if they turn me off football, if they turn me off this – this club I've supported for most of my life uh, to greater and lesser extents, depending on what's going on in my life. Fuck them. I get to watch my club. I hope my club keeps trying to do football the right-ish way. They don't need to be perfect. But, but can I probe that, that a little? Because yeah. this, is, this is the issue. What happens when you start to believe that the right-ish way doesn't have any path to relevance. You, you see, what, and I mean, we don't need to, to go too much further down this because it does sure, get a bit doom and gloomy. De- and we can, we, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the relevance thing, right? Relevance, you just need, you always reframe because there are clubs up and down the pyramid who struggle with that every day, and we don't we don't bat an eyelid at their challenges. They're in the third division, second division, fourth division. You can make Re- an argument. They have the more the, the more um, clear distillation of what that competitive landscape should be in the sense that if you're well run and clever and economically savvy in those leagues, I mean, look at a Brentford, right? You can make a huge leap, but they can't make that leap in the premier league. Yeah. For the most part, uh, I'm sure there are stories down there of clubs who, you know, it's pretty easy to step in with a small amount of money and effectively do something that feels like cheating in the third or, but yeah, yeah, by and large. And that's always been the case. uh, And uh, a local supporter business owner could always and has always done that Newcastle in fact in the past but it's just again it's not linear it's it's asymmetric the amounts of money that can come in the Premier League but that's the world we live in today and probably will do for the rest of my life so that's that's the club's challenge and I will support it in it as long as it doesn't uh, become one of them and stays you know, a club that tries to basically operate within a rough proximity of its own budget uh, uh, with, so that it doesn't pollute football for everybody. Um, sign me up. I'll support us. And that's my relationship. You know, but I guess my point is I can't control it all, but I also can, uh, I don't think 
it seems like cowardice to say, oh, this is terrible. Uh, it spoiled my relationship. I want to walk away from this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I don't know that I'm saying it would do that. I think what I'm saying is like... It will for some not, people. And, and cowardice is a, a bad word. They'll just they'll just lose the heart for it. And, and it's sad. And I take back the word cowardice. That's how I frame it for me because I'm... How about Dickhead. capitulation? <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's, you know what it is? Look, I have the, I go in the discord with the patrons, right? We'll have hour long debates, arguments about the minutia of squad building. It's fascinating. But the reason we can get intensely invested in that is the feeling that if you get it right, that it is a puzzle that can fit together. And when it fits together, you can do what Liverpool did. And maybe the fact that Liverpool did it shows that it's not out of the question, but they did it against one Chelsea, which is sort of a half city in one city, what if it's Chelsea and City and a mega city and suddenly like those conversations just stop being interesting? I, I guess, Clive, the the issue then is what's the solution to this? But this is going to upend football. It's, go, it's not going to be a top four anymore. It's not going to be a top six anymore. I mean, it's going to be United and City and Chelsea and Liverpool and Arsenal and Spurs and Newcastle. And maybe you want to throw Everton in there. Let's not forget they have an influx of money that can be relevant in the conversation. Maybe not in the conversation with what Newcastle now have, but with us and, and Liverpool. Um, is the solution more spots in UEFA competitions? Is the solution a super league, but reimagined somehow. I, I will say, I hear a lot of people talk about salary caps, wage caps. They create parity and they help make sport more competitive amongst teams. I'm going to say something's going to upset people. You cannot have wage caps and relegation and promotion. You can't have that. The reason being that you cannot simultaneously tell an owner, you cannot spend more than the competition. You can only spend the same. Everyone can spend the same. But you can also go down. You can't avoid it. You can't protect yourself. Because I, I can say this as a fan of leagues in the United States for many years that have those caps. Every team gets their chance to be a winner and at the top, for the most part. And every team gets their chance to be the worst team in the league and at the bottom. And once you implement wage caps, then you have the, uh, the opposite problem, which is that clubs, you cannot develop any sort of um, stability for clubs in the league. So I think clubs that, in order to approve a wage cap, to the extent that even, you know, I'm not going to get into labor law, I don't understand European and British labor law and what, what would be allowed with that, to the extent that you'd want to implement that, I think the owners would demand a closed league, which is what the Super League was meant to be. And if you don't do it in a Super League, you'd have to do it in a Premier League, and that is obviously also a non-starter. I am increasingly inclined to think a league where the super-rich mega clubs go play with themselves, literally and figuratively, um, and get out all their fantasy ideas about what football's meant to be together and go have a blast is not the most unhealthy solution such that the clubs that still have an interest in trying to sort of solve the problem in a way where revenues and turnover matter can go ahead and continue that, that project. But I realize that that's also a deeply unpopular answer. So is there one that you find more Interesting or compelling. And I'll let Paul go here because I know he's up against sure. a hard stop. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo. Woohoo, indeed. Um, Clive, of the solutions, and maybe the solution is don't freak out. Just go with it. Yeah. You know, I, it's I just think life. We, we, what's, we're going to go. I'm not sure we're in the solution stage yet because 
at the moment we're just digesting the news and it's almost like a we got a bit of time to think over the international break it's almost like a reminder of the game structures and, and where we sit within it as Arsenal fans right it's a reminder and there are other people with other models that are just different to ours and we have to compete with them and this is about competition and how you feel about that competition except that the numbers we're talking about here don't really allow for competition. If they are allowed to flex those muscles, then it's over for everybody. They are immediately the richest sports owners in the world. Immediately, day one. And, and not close, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and not even close, right? So I think the Man City guys are worth $21 billion, and we think they're up in the sky somewhere. So when you're talking north of 350 this is what we're talking about here. And so that that makes you think, that makes you think about things in a broad way. So I'm not sure in solution mode. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a level of, okay, this has happened. And then it's going to be a level of people speaking against it, you know, from their stance. And that's going to be interesting to see how that's covered. You know, I think that's going to happen then. And then, then they're going to have to do a level of sports washing and recovery and reputational recovery. And that's going to be around the hiring of people. And it's not just players on the pitch, as you know. We talk about sports directors, managers, you know, um, fitness guys, the best people, executives, the best people, recruitment people, scouts. They're going to now have the ability to hire the best people and have the most people around their club. And that's the challenge, right? So they may come along and just say, for example, take Michael Edwards away from Liverpool. There you go, done. We know that situation may happen anyway, but you know, I'm using that as an example. The most famous stats guy that I know in the game is they may go to Sevilla and say, oh, We fancy Monchi. And then all his contacts immediately come with him. You know, it opens up the potential for a talent drain into that, into that part of the world. It's going to be inter- interesting to see how football world reacts to this from people's perspective because you can't do it with just cash. You need people to follow that cash. You need a proper structure behind you. And that will take some time. The solution for the game, uh, I'm not sure um, where the game is going, you know, full stop. I think there's a push and pull with FIFA. There's a push and pull with UEFA. There's a push and pull with the Champions League, European competitions, FIFA want World Cup every two years. UEFA want to expand the <laughs> expand the um, European Championships. There are another there's a third UEFA competition now the Conference League. Where are we going here? We go, we're going to a point where the games can be all year round. You know where are we going? There's only so much talent to go around at the moment. So I do have that concern about the the well-being of the people within the sport, the well-being of the people that support it, football. Um, this is not just a Newcastle thing. This is something that's been in my mind a little while. But this seems to have really slapped me in the head today to make me think about it. And it feels like a a moment. And let's see how... And I, I'm really, I keep saying it earlier, and I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but I still... I want to see how the football world reacts, the investigative mm-hmm. journalists react, the... The media providers like Sky and BT see how they react, you know, how the football authorities react to this. It's going to be such an interesting and revealing time to see what people really care about. Well, think about this for a second. What percentage of top four finishes has City had in the last 10 years? 
A hundred percent? They haven't been outside the top four in a decade, have they? I don't think so. Almost sure, but it would be something like that. They can, yeah. well, they've changed the landscape, haven't they? Right. Chelsea, okay. so, well, Chelsea did, didn't they? they well, they, so, yeah. But so, so just think about this for a second, though. Think about this from the perspective of uh, from just the math. Manchester City, let's say over the next 20 years, Manchester City finished top four 95% of the time. And Chelsea finished top four 90% of the time. And Newcastle finished top four 95% of the time. And United finished top four 85% of the time. Now let's say you are Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal, Everton, any of those other teams, yeah. right? Um, you're looking at maybe three available top four finishes in 20 years, four available top four finishes in 20 years. How many titles? Maybe one title that will go to any of the other teams? One that will go to a non-Newcastle, City, Chelsea, United team in 20 years. So now you're looking at fans who say, I have a one in 20 shot of maybe having a title available to one of the rest of us and maybe a three or four and 20 shot of having a top four finish available no matter how well we spend, no matter how well we build. If that becomes the landscape, then you start to change what the goals are. Then you start to change what you're trying to compete for and win. I mean, Clive, we've already shifted our goals. Let's be honest. As a fan base, many of us now admit that the goal is to be in the Europa League. Will the goal become to be in the Europa Conference? Will more spots open up? I guess... I do think that the only way this becomes sustainable is for UEFA to back down and give more spots to the Premier League. Yeah. Because otherwise, these these clubs owned by the likes of FSG and KSE, look, they may not have the money that the Saudi Wealth Fund has, but they have influence, and they have plenty of money themselves, and they're not going to sit back and watch themselves become forced into irrelevance, nor are they going to spend their way out. They're going to try to do what they always do, which is change the laws to benefit their interests. That's, yeah. you know, the one area where I'll disagree with Paul is what billionaires know how to do is force the laws to change to suit their needs. And that's what they're going to try to do. Yeah, I, the, the whole top six thing for the for the Champions League is is one way to, um, to slow this down a little bit and to control things. I, I think we're going to be, we, we're coming out of a pandemic and some financial fair play rules are were relaxed because they want to keep money flowing within the game. If Newcastle start throwing money around, that money is within the game. We we benefited from Man City buying our players. We did at a time when we needed that cash, you know, and we sold those players at good prices. We didn't like it at the time when some of them went. We didn't mind some of them going, but they were, that money was reinvested and kept us in the top end of the pitch for quite a while until we messed up towards the end of Wenger's reign, etc. So that could happen again. You know, how would we all feel if, if Saka goes to Newcastle for 100 million? Right? How would we all feel about that? You know, it, well, it'll, so, it'll so that's be... an interesting point. Can, can I say something about that that yeah, I think yeah, okay. makes this really complicated? Is there's a part of me, the dumb part of me, the part everybody hates, the squad building part of me that says, well, that's what you want. You want to get that windfall. You know, that's that's how Liverpool did it, 120 million for Coutinho. But here's the yeah. problem. At, at the point that the money stops mattering, all you're really doing then is losing a player you love because yeah. you can't turn that money. You know, you say, oh, we'll, we'll flip that 100 million and buy. Well, buy what? Because Holland went for three hundred, and Mbappe went for two fifty, and, and, and now you're you know you're you're buying um, you're trying to get a thirty two year old Mikel Antonio for that hundred million. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. that's the problem. The game was settling down, and PSG came along, and they bought Neymar, and the game changed. Everything changed from that moment on. Wages went up. Suddenly, you're talking about a transfer fee that was like 
double the previous record, something like that. And the game just, inflation took over and wages went to a different place. And some clubs have really suffered. You know, again, we can say they deserved it, it's their fault. But look at Barcelona, their wage bill over the last few years has been the highest in the world sport for 10 years or so. I mean, they had great success, but look at the club now. It's ruined. It's literally bankrupt. You know, so these things do have a broader impact to the game. Inflation is the big worry. We are sitting there on the back, literally looking at an economic V-shaped recovery and more money is going to flow into the game of football. More media money is going to flow into the game of football. The Premier League is in good shape. Its clubs have really come through the pandemic in good shape because our TV deal is solid. It's been kept, it's been kept. No one's run away from us like they did in France, for example. So we're sitting there in a great position to take advantage, but we can also, that could just explode with inflation and that could have a far-reaching impact on some good clubs that take the gamble, like Derby County did. They took the gamble. They wanted the Premier League promised land and they didn't get there through a couple of playoff final defeats, and look where they are now, you know, literally in the administration. So it is a worry. I care about, I love my game. I love the game, sorry. I love my club. Um, I worry about the game. Um, I worry about where it's going. I'm worrying about the disconnection, and I'm loving the direction that Arsenal are going and reconnecting to the fans and reconnecting to the people. I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And we just got to be the best us that we can be and make sure that we we operate by the values which we all know and love. And that's all we can hope for. The solution for the game, Elliot, is mm. not in our pocket, mate. But it'd be inter- again, I keep saying it, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the football world reacts to this. And maybe, you know, the funny thing is maybe it's already changing. Like, for example, I would have thought Liverpool would have sold Salah or sold Mane, started their rebuild, done the thing they do, right? Cash in, get the big payday, buy smart. Yeah. But maybe even Liverpool look at it and say, well, we might have another title in us, but what's the point of selling now? There's only four or five clubs you can sell to, and we can't yeah. we can't compete. You know, trying to compete with Manchester City eventually it is a fool's errand. It is it is uh, it is a, a war of attrition, and that attrition will be the the success of our club. Maybe I have this backwards, Clive. Maybe owners like FSG and KSE are cheering the arrival yeah. of the Saudi wealth fund for this reason. They if Stan Kroenke no longer has, well, they, they could sell, but but even more short term, once you don't have the burden to compete, if we reach the point where the fan base is willing to accept we can't compete with Chelsea or City or United or Newcastle, then suddenly the amount of investment needed is less. You can take advantage of those huge TV contracts and ticket receipts, but you don't have to go out and try to spend your way to a title because Arsenal fans five, six years ago would not have allowed would not have accepted the club saying, hey, top seven is a trophy. We yeah. barely allowed top four as a trophy. But I think more fans are going to come to the realization that you can't compete with this money. And that gives these billionaire owners an out to say, hey, sorry, we just, you know, we really can't compete with the Saudi public interest yep. fund. So, sorry. You can't. So really, the, the, what you're trying to say, Elliot, or I think you're trying to say before I don't know, Elliot, and interrupted you. Please, fire Is up. that you, you don't have to win anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right. The burden of winning is relieved, which then makes football a lot more profitable. I mean, you've heard Stan say it years ago. We don't buy clubs to win titles. That's don't not the goal. Win. Do Manchester but before, United. there was at least the illusory pressure to go try to win. Now, I think you can make the argument, well, it's not realistic. We can't do that. 
I mean, I'd really trying to win. But, you know, are they trying to win? They're trying, but are they really trying? They're Manchester United. If they were they're to a really brand try, more than they are a football club, yeah, right? <laughs> they, but their but their success, they're growing. Their revenues are growing. You know, the Glazers are selling their shares, making money. Do they? Do they have to win? Now the fan is sitting there saying, screaming at me now, saying, "Yeah, we need to win. We need to win trophies. We need to get back here." Yes, you are absolutely morally right from a business perspective, not a sporting perspective. From a business perspective, you don't have to win. You just have to be positioned. It's as simple as that. Where the money is in the game, yeah. You just don't stay in the anymore. Premier League. Give the illusion that you're trying. You know, buy some talented young players. And, and to be fair to Stan Kroenke and KC, they have invested a lot of money in the last few seasons. So I yeah. don't want to pretend they haven't. But there is sort of a a freedom for an owner who realizes they no longer have the burden of trying to keep up with these oil rich cl- clubs. And and I want to just really quickly speak to any Newcastle fan or Newcastle fan adjacent person listening. Nothing that I've said today is a criticism of your excitement over what's happening to your club. I just think it is impossible to ask a fan who has suffered the way Newcastle fans have to keep it in perspective, to object yeah. to this, to, to uphold the values, because it must feel like there are no values at Newcastle with the owners they've had. And while I think this is troubling, problematic, deeply worrying for football, ethically, morally, com- competitively, I cannot point a finger at a fan base like that because if I want to be completely honest, if it was our club being bought, I'm not saying I'd excuse it. I wouldn't come out here and and give all the excuses. I wouldn't do that. But deep down in the part of me that doesn't like to shine in daylight, there'd be a part of me that was kind of excited to see what was coming. So I don't want to be a hypocrite and pretend that those fans should just, you know, go protest this. I can understand the, the internal conflict they must be feeling and why there's a part of them that must be very excited i can understand it even if i think it sucks yeah they they must be over the moon today they must be and they're on the tv they're outside the ground excited they're excited they've watched other teams that have been financially dope come to their grounds and smash them over many many years they've lost cup semi-finals they've, they've won nothing for i don't know decades it feels like and now they've got a chance and they're just not looking. And why should they at the things, at the darkest things in the room? Why should they at this moment in time? It, it may come out over time. There was a poll the other day, there was 90% of them wanting to take over. So they, we're football fans when it comes in to the end of it. We are football fans. We want to see our team do well. We want to enjoy what we watch. I'm a little bit more mature, so how we approach it is important to me, um, very important to me. Um but I say that from a position where I've seen a few league titles and I've, and I've got drunk in the, the Arsenal Tavern after 89 and I've been, done all that stuff. I've done it, seen it, home and away, done it. So I can sit here and say, yeah, well, you know what? I'm prepared to wait. Not everyone has got that patience. Not everyone is in there is on the same journey that I am. And you have to respect where other people are about their own clubs. And um, So, yeah, this is going to challenge us. It's going to challenge our expectations around what success looks like and um it's going to be interesting to watch this earlier i really am proper interested in this you know because i think the game needs to look at itself really quickly so it feels like this will hasten some kind of change in the in the structure of football um maybe not in the next two or three years while while newcastle is starting to spin up this project but by four or five years from now when they have become what city are and maybe even bigger and it's inevitable. Yeah. Don't don't fool yourself. 
It is inevitable. I've heard, I've had people at me at Twitter. Oh, you think players are going to go want to go live in Newcastle? Have you been to Newcastle? Like, listen, I have. Yeah, about forty times, and it's a fantastic city. I've had many a yeah, night out I, in Newcastle, and it's yeah. brilliant. So don't think they won't go to Newcastle. Of course they will. It wouldn't matter if it wasn't brilliant. That's just look. I live in Minnesota, and there are things I like about it. I'm a New Yorker. I'm. I, I now live in Minnesota. I have for a while. In the winter, it is roughly hell on earth. <laughs> Okay, but like you can you can have a family anywhere. You can raise your family anywhere. You can be happy anywhere if you have the things you need, family, economics, you know, stability, things like that. Players will go and, and do this. And they will do this in part because clubs like City have trailblazed this, right, to prove that these projects work. So don't fool yourself. Four or five seasons from now with the money they have, they're going to be what City are. And by that time, some kind of structural change is, is is either going to be needed or I think we'll be having very different conversations about squad building and what to do in the window. And we will not be laughing at the Europa conference anymore. I'll tell you that much. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll Cause see. we'll, we'll want to play in it. Well, we'll, we will see indeed. So let's leave it there. This is a heavy one, a very, very heavy one. We're going to do another one tomorrow, a main pod tomorrow pod for everybody. That'll be a little more uh, just directly on the football stuff, but there's no way to get around this. If you say, what is the single biggest thing? that's happened in Arsenal this year. It's this, because this is the biggest thing that's happening to all the clubs that are trying to get where those big money clubs are. And now there's another one at the table. Um, and I, I do, you know, it is also interesting. I'll, I'll finish with this thought. We were asked to be part of the Super League. Spurs hilariously were asked to be part of the Super League. If it comes around five years from now, I know. Who, who are those we'll- teams? Who are those brands? Are, you know, do we have a divine right, Clive, to be one of the big football brands in the world? We grew up where it's unthinkable that Arsenal wouldn't be, but our last title was almost 20 years ago. You know? Yeah, but we are, again, historically, our fan base, our revenue streams, they put yeah. us firmly. Our, own, our owner still isn't one of the top 10 richest owners in, in football at the moment. Yeah, fair point. Um, so, yeah, I know we're feeling a little bit, oh, what's going to happen today? A little bit edgy. But um, but yeah, don't trust me, mate. When you look at the top six revenues compared to everyone else, we're we're miles ahead commercially. We're still developing, still growing. I like what we're doing. We got to keep doing it. We got to keep making sure. In some ways, this makes what we're doing even in better. You know, mm. we just got to do it better and keep doing it and make sure that we are the best version of Arsenal that we can possibly be. And um, if we do that. There's enough people out there that will like us, that will support us and support the people around the club and make sure the opposition in the game is is not under any threat. So, yeah, there's different ways to skin a cat, mate, and I'm I'm prepared to wait the way we're doing it. Yeah, all right. Well, let's let's see where it goes. I, I hope that this conversation touched on all the issues that many people are thinking about and also did it respectfully and understanding that it's complicated, it's still new, it is very important. And while for some people this will just be a conversation that's, you know, it's not Arsenal football related directly, so it's a little boring. Like, I hear you. If, if it's not for you, totally fine as well. If it's not for you, you're not hearing this message at this point, so I understand that. But, um, you know, again, th- the degree to which this is going to change the landscape of football cannot be overstated. So uh, we'll probably touch on it more in bits and pieces as more news comes out and as we understand more what it's going to mean, but we will get back on the directly Arsenal football-related discussion train tomorrow. So uh, thank you for uh, letting us move through this 
you know, this complex topic. Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Thanks, bud. Thank you very much. My name is Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Um, we do have a couple of really good analytics pods for patrons coming out. We did a first half rewatch of Brighton that I have to say, just in terms of the tactical uh, concepts good, that it? Clive pulled out. Yeah, it was a really, really interesting one. Uh, that's over on the Patreon as well. And, um, uh, we do have uh, a special guest lined up for over there as well. So lo- lots of stuff happening, both both sides. If you're here, that's great. We're happy to have you here. If you're there and you can afford that, we love you for being there. But again, the most important thing is just just to have you as part of the conversation is all that, that matters. It means a lot to us. So thank you for that. Uh, we will leave it there. More tomorrow. We love you. We'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Palace Milton.